I am here with NHL legend Theo Fleury. Theo, thanks so much for coming on Perform. Yeah, my pleasure. So I've obviously been a big fan of yours. I've followed your story. You know, you've played in various, obviously, NHL teams. Is there one team or one time when you think back that really stands out for you? Like, you know, I know you played with the Flames, the Blackhawks. And tell us about why that would stand out for you in your NHL career. Well, first of all, I was told that I was never going to play, right? Because I was too small, right? Mm. And, uh, you know, I got drafted in 1987 uh, after 20 rounds of the draft. Mm. Okay, so basically the first year I was eligible, I didn't get drafted. And then the second year, I got picked in the eighth round by the Calgary Flames. And all I ever wanted was an opportunity and a chance. And the Flames gave me that chance in 1987. And uh, uh, I came to my first training camp in Calgary and turned a whole bunch of non-believers into believers. And, uh, and so you're asking me about which team it would be the Calgary Flames because they're the team that gave me the opportunity and gave me the chance. And... Uh, and then not only that, uh, you know, when I finally did make it to the show, um, you know, I won a Stanley Cup here in Calgary. And so I live in Calgary now. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a true Calgarian and I'm a true Albertan. And, uh, you know, I uh, everything I have, uh, I owe to the Flames organization and the people of uh, Calgary and the people of Alberta. Mm. What was it like growing up in Saskatchewan, you know, from, you know, obviously it's pretty hockey town, but give us a little bit of insight about that. Uh, well, I believe, you know, it's the heart and soul of hockey in Canada, you know, um, grew up on outdoor rinks, grew up, you know, in very cold, extreme environment. Uh, you know, I think that's where a lot of my toughness, uh, you know, sort of, blossomed and uh, created itself and uh, um, you know <clears throat> I grew up in a in a home where you know both my uh, both my parents uh, struggled with addiction mm. and uh, you know it wasn't a whole lot of fun to to be around my house and uh, and so hockey and baseball um, you know sort of became my happy place because when I wasn't, when I was there, I didn't have to be at home. And, and not only that, I was really good. Uh, I was a good athlete. And, uh, um, and so, uh, I spent every waking hour, you know, either at the rink or on a baseball field, you know, trying to, trying to get better every day. And, uh, um, I don't think it was, uh, at that point, I don't think it was uh, uh, cognizant. I think, uh, you know, originally it was just an escape from, you know, my home life. And uh, uh, there was lots of really great people in the community that I grew up with that raised me and taught me some really uh, amazing core values that... Uh, you know, that I still hold near and dear to my heart today. And, uh, you know, and then as I got older and uh, uh, got more exposure, um, you know, there was 
scouts that were coming to watch me play. And, uh, and then ultimately, uh, you know, I got drafted by the Winnipeg Warriors of uh, the Western Hockey League. And uh, when I was 15, I moved to uh, Winnipeg for better competition and better coaching. And uh, then the year after that, I, uh, the team that I was originally drafted by got sold to uh, the Mo- uh, town uh, in Saskatchewan called Moose Jaw. And so I moved with the team and I spent four years, uh, you know, playing in Moose Jaw. Hmm. Tell us a little bit about like, obviously, you know, you've, we know about the addiction that you've had with alcohol, with drugs, like how did it start? How did you kind of like get through it? Like, you know, I have a friend, a couple friends that are going through some alcohol addiction right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've come to the point where it's like, I want to help them, but they got to help themselves. So it's like, you know, do I, would you say for people out there that are also probably in situations where they've got loved ones, should they, should they take a step back? Like, was it where everybody left you and then you decided to kind of like move forward or was there, you know, give us some insight. Yeah. Well, I hate the word addiction. Yeah. I hate it because it has so much shame attached to it. And, you know, most people don't understand addiction, right? Because, uh, it's very socially acceptable to go to a bar and drink your face off and get hammered. Right. Mm. So most people, uh, say, well, why don't you just stop? Well, I wish it was that easy. And so, um, the reason why people, um, use alcohol or drugs or, whatever, gambling, sex, you know, whatever it is, is they experience trauma in their life, okay? And I shared with you uh, uh, the first traumatic experience of my life was living with my parents who both suffered with addiction. And really what addiction is, it is a coping mechanism to suppress emotional pain and suffering. Ultimately, that's what it is. And, uh, you know, uh, I had a coach who over a two, two, two and a half year period raped me 150 times as well. Okay. Wow. And shortly after that, I discovered alcohol as a way of, you know, sort of dealing with what was happening. And, uh, you know, I was addicted from probably the first drop because, you know, uh, the way that I was feeling the alcohol would suppress, you know, the emotional pain that I was experiencing. And, uh, and so, you know, I went along in life, uh, you know, drinking a lot. And then I, you know, and then I started to to discover the hard drugs, you know, marijuana, uh, cocaine, uh, you know, uh, there was, there was a lot of sex addiction involved. There was a lot of, uh, gambling issues as well. And, uh, and so, you know, I got to the point where, um, you know, the alcohol and the drugs weren't working anymore. None of that, none of those coping mechanisms were working anymore. And, you know, 16 years ago, I had a fully loaded pistol in my mouth, ready to pull the trigger. 
not because I wanted to die, but I was completely exhausted from living in this emotional pain and suffering. And, you know, I basically tried everything on the planet to get rid of this. And, uh, um, and uh, after that unsuccessful suicide attempt, uh, you know, I started on a, down a path of healing and uh, self-discovery and uh, um, getting honest. And, uh, you know, I wrote a book uh, in 2009 called Playing With Fire that uh, really changed my life and, and uh, put me on a different path. Mm-hmm. What, what was it that made you change, though? Like, was there a moment that you hit rock bottom? Yeah, I didn't want to die. Right. I had the gun in my mouth and I couldn't pull the trigger. So obviously uh, I don't want to die. So I better figure out how to live life on, on life's terms. And so, you know, uh, that was the start of it. Right. Could anybody like, let's say that, that you were in your addiction, you know, deep in your addiction. And let's just say that somebody wanted to get through to you. Could they have got through to you? Like what advice can you give people like families or, you know, well, you can't, you can't help somebody that doesn't want help, right? That's the bottom line. And that's the most difficult thing with addiction is, you know, the last person to see their lives going down the drain is us, right? And what alcoholics and addicts are really good at is we are really good at collecting enablers. We collect them because the more enablers we have, the longer our behavior can last. But what happens is, is we eventually make the enablers sick from our behavior. And so the enablers then go look after themselves and then we're left alone to our own defenses, right? And nine times out of 10, when that happens, most of us hit that proverbial rock bottom because there are no more enablers in our life. And, and then we're, like I said, we're left with our own defenses. And so we either continue down that path and die or we smarten up and, and, uh, you know, start to figure this out. Did you go to a treatment center? I've, I've done every kind of therapy known to mankind. What about the people that are out there that are deep in addiction, but can't afford to leave their job for whatever reason and pay to go to a treatment center. Like I was faced with a situation recently where a friend of mine was deep in addiction and he's like, you know, I can't afford $10,000. Right. You know, and then, then it kind of puts me in the position, you know, of, you know, do I help this person get the $10,000? Like, like I didn't really know how to handle that. Like, what are your thoughts? Well, one out of every 30 people that go to a treatment facility go on to have continuous sobriety. One out of 30. Wow. Okay. So what I suggest is there are many different 12-step programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, uh, there's Sex Addiction Anonymous, um, and they are wonderful programs. And it costs you $2 a day to go to a meeting. Mm. That's it. Mm. You know, and um, that's where I started. I started in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm. And, and, you know, from there, you know, I needed a little bit more work. So I started, you know, 
doing a lot of counseling, doing some group therapy. Um, I went to different treatment centers. Um, but, uh, you know, that's where you have to get to. You have to get to the point where you're willing to do whatever it takes to stay sober one day at a time. That's it. Mm. That's what it's all about. Mm. And, and, um, because we live in a society that uh, loves to attach stigma and labels to everything, it is a detriment to people who are trying to get sober, right? Mm. And, you know, the best advice you can give somebody uh, is you have to know what your boundaries are, what you will accept from that person. You let them know that these are my boundaries. And if you cross them, I will have to leave so that I can take care of myself. Mm. Right. Mm. And, you know, I grew up in a home where there was no boundaries, none. Mm. Didn't learn boundaries. Didn't even know what the word meant. And, um, and so, you know, a lot of the enablers don't have boundaries, right? And, um, you know, and we, we, we are the fixers, right? We try to fix everything, right? Mm. But somebody who's in the throes of addiction, they don't want to be fixed. Mm. They don't want to be fixed. Mm. The only thing they focus on 24 hours a day, seven days a week is how do I get loaded? Mm. That's their only focus. Mm. Right? Correct. And so, you know, you sit them down, you say, I love you. I care about you. But I can't watch this anymore. Mm. Because it's making me sick. Mm. Right? Mm. And, and you say to them, when you're ready, for help, I will be here for you every step of the way. But until you make that choice and you make that decision, there's nothing I can do that's going to change what's what's happening. Mm. From the moment that you started deciding that you wanted to get sober, you know, till you actually got sober, how long did that take? Was it a year? Was it you know, it took me. It took me ten years to get one day. Wow. Yep. And how long did it take you? So, so from that one day, did you keep going and stay yep. sober? Yep. I have it on my phone. I'll let you know here. Uh, whoop! Hang on. I have fifty-four hundred and ninety-one consecutive days of sobriety. Wow. My sobriety date is September 18th, 2005. I've been sober a little over 15 years now. Congratulations. That's yeah. Thank you. Amazing. I want to, you know, for my own, I, I was a, watching the World Juniors brawl. Yeah. I want to hear about, like, how this went down, because I know you were in the middle of it all. Give us some insight on what, you know, what that was like, you know, how it all started and, you know, what that meant to you. Oh, geez. Well, 
I, I wasn't supposed to be on that team. That's the first thing. Mm. Um, you know, I went to uh, I went to the camp in, at Christmas time and basically, you know, lit it up um, during the camp and uh, made the team and uh, basically had a fourth line sort of role on that team. Mm. And uh, and we had a great tournament, you know. And uh, so the final game. Uh, we had to beat the Russians by four goals because it was a round robin tournament. There was no quarterfinal, semifinal, final at that time. It was just a straight round robin tournament. Team with the best record, you know, won the gold medal. So we had to win by four goals. Uh, the Russians uh, had a horrible tournament. Uh, they were very embarrassed. And whether they beat us or not, they, they could finish no higher than sixth in the tournament. Mm. And so we were well on our way to achieving our goal of winning by four goals. And the game was really kind of chippy and, you know, dirty. And, uh, and so about halfway through the second period, a whistle. Uh, one of my teammates got into a scuffle with one of the Russian guys uh, they started throwing punches. Then we all sort of kind of went over to that spot. I got cross-checked from behind. My teammate stepped in. Next thing you know, there's a five-on-five -five line brawl happening. And then I looked up and I saw both benches coming, gloves flying everywhere. Everybody's throwing punches and, you know, here we go. But the ironic thing about that whole thing was it was happening every night in the league that we were all playing in junior hockey. There was either a line brawl or a bench clearing brawl every night where we, you know, where we'd come from. Mm. And, and so basically, you know, we brawled these guys for about 45 minutes and uh, then we cleaned, cleaned up the ice. We were sitting in the dressing room. And uh, the president of Hockey Canada at that time came into the dressing room and basically said we'd been disqualified and kicked out of the tournament. And, uh, you know, the rest is, is, is sort of history. Wow. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I, I was watching that and that was an insane brawl. That was all time. Like, I was pretty, pretty impressed. Um, it was infamous. That's for sure. <laughs> For sure. Um, tell me a little bit about, you know, how you overcame Crohn's disease, you know, and what that means to you. I know that there's, you've got a few things going on with that right now. Mm -hmm. Give us some insight on that. Uh, let's see. I was diagnosed uh, in 96 with uh, Crohn's. Uh, didn't really know uh, the extent of it at that time. Um you know, they, uh, they obviously went the big farmer route right at the beginning. You know, I was put on a steroid. Um, I know why Olympic athletes uh, take steroids because uh, when I was on um, prednisone, mm. it was unbelievable. I could have played a whole entire hockey game and not got tired once, you know, on these things. But what happened was my feet and my hands started to swell up and, you know, it caused me a lot of pain and discomfort. So I got rid of the, I got rid of the prednisone and then I started to look at a holistic approach to Crohn's. And um, 
uh, at that time, you know, uh, you know, the holistic um, remedies were kind of hadn't been studied a lot. You know, there was some information, not a lot of information. Um, you know, I changed my diet a little bit and that gave me some, some relief. Um, uh, but any kind of stomach ailment, it all goes back to stress, right? And the less uh, amount of stress that you live in, the easier it is for, you know, the stomach to perform, you know, the way that it should perform. And, uh, um, you know, being, being in the, you know, in this field of mental health and mental wellness, uh, you know, I've discovered that um, we always thought, you know, the epicenter uh, for everything was our brain. Well, it's not, you know, the, the, the brain is actually the gut, you know, and what we put in uh, to our stomach uh, has a huge impact on our overall, overall well being. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I still have it. Um, I still have episodes of it, but, you know, I have a toolbox full of tools now where, you know, um, you know, um, I'm just reading a book now uh, called, uh, what's it called? Enzyme something or other. It's, it's about enzymes and the importance of, of, uh, you know, using external enzymes to um, alleviate uh, inflammation in the body, mm. and uh, and so you know, it, it's been it's been a process. Um, I am way better uh, than I've ever been at any point in my life. I'm drinking uh, Kangen water now as well, mm. which is amazing stuff. Uh, very healing properties in it. Um, you know, I take, I take a probiotic, um, every day, uh, and, uh, you know, lots of enzymes and stuff. So, um, you know, I've been able to decrease the inflammation in my body, which, uh, you know, I believe that, uh, uh, all of us have issues with inflammation in our body because of the, you know, the way our food is processed and, and, uh, you know, when we, go to get it in the store, you know, they, they package it up really well and they put all kinds of, you know, fun things on it to, that attracts us to, to eat it. Uh, food causes a lot of the inflammation that we have in our bodies that causes a lot of uh, physical and, and mental issues as well. Is there anything you wanted to go over today, Theo, before we wrap up or any questions you have? Well, you know, I, I work in the field of trauma, mental health, and addiction, and I believe it's the biggest epidemic that we have on the planet. And uh, and you know, we as a society have not created a safe space for people to talk about their trauma because I believe everything starts with trauma, and then you know because. We experience trauma as little people, mm. and that trauma leaves us in emotional pain and suffering. Okay, mm. 
And so how do we deal with this emotional pain and suffering that's left behind from these traumatic experiences? Well, we tend to gravitate towards the dark side of life when we get involved in addictions as a way of coping with the emotional pain that's left behind from those experiences. And because society uh, doesn't have a whole lot of compassion or empathy for emotional pain, uh, we tend to keep all of this inside. And by doing that, it causes us a lot of physical and emotional suffering for many, many years. Until we get to the point where, like I said, we got to make a choice. we got to make a decision. Am I going to die or am I going to live? And the only way we're going to live is by using our voice to talk about what happened to us, mm. right? Mm. And, you know, in 2009, I wrote this book called Playing with Fire. Mm. And I had no idea why I was writing this book other than for selfish reasons. I wanted to put all this stuff on paper, take one last look at it and put it in its rightful place, which was the past. <clears throat> well, the universe has a sense of humor because um, what happened was when I was out on the book tour, I got run over by people who were coming up to book signing and saying, hey, man, I read your book. You told my story, me too, right? And so consciously, I didn't realize that the vulnerability in which I told my story created a safe space for people to approach me and tell me their own trauma story or their trauma history. And, and, and so when we're vulnerable, uh, it creates safety. And then when you have safety, that's when the magic of healing happens is when people feel safe. And, you know, we're living right now with the most traumatic event that's ever happened since World War II, which is COVID. Okay. And so we've had more people die of opioid overdoses and suicides than we've actually had of COVID. Mm. Okay. And so, you know, when we live in fear, which is what they want, that's, that's what they want. Mm. Um, it puts a tremendous amount of stress on the body and the mental and your mental wellness. Hmm. And because the stigma is, I'm, I can't talk about this stuff. That's why we're seeing all of these uh, astronomical stats around opioid deaths and suicides is because we have not created a safe space in society for all of us who experience trauma and mental health issues and addiction issues, there's no place for us to go. Mm. There's no place for us to talk, right? Mm. And there's all these campaigns and all these, you know, fluffy things out there. Mm. 
but like I said, we haven't, we haven't created that safe space, you know, mm-hmm. and until we do that, we are going to see, uh, these, um, addiction deaths and suicides continually rise because there's no place in society to put this epidemic. Mm. For people that are, you know, really vibing with that and going through a lot of stuff, what advice can you give them? What could they do right now for people that are watching this, that are going through a lot of stuff? Can you give some for, you know, insight on how how you can help them? What I always say is if you struggle with mental health and addiction issues, you're in the majority. Mm. You're not in the minority, Mm. right? Um, you know, for many years, I thought that I was the only person in the world that was experiencing what I was experiencing. And like I said, I got vulnerable. I told my story to the world. And what happened is I ran into a whole bunch of other people who were struggling just like I was. Mm. And, you know, so I've been for the last... 15 years, I've been going around collecting people, I call it, Mm. collecting people who had, who've had the same experiences as I have and created this dialogue and created this safe space and, and have used the vulnerability of my story to create, you know, these safe spaces and these safe conversations. And so, um, You know, we weren't put on this earth to suffer in silence. Mm. We are put on this earth to be in relationship with one another and help each other get through the most difficult times in our life. And, um, you know, the one relationship that I neglected the most was the relationship I had with myself. Okay. Mm. And I used all external outlets to suppress the relationship I had with myself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the night before I got sober, I hit my knees in a washroom and I surrendered. And I said, I cannot do this on my own anymore. I need help. And from that came this amazing life that I get to live today, Mm. right? And um, ultimately, that's what has to happen, right? Because you can't do this on your own. You cannot overcome any one of these three things on your own. Mm. Because I tried it Mm. and I failed miserably every time because I had this, you know, tough guy, you know, macho attitude. Mm. Right. And so when I surrendered, I got rid of all that stuff because I knew I was going to die. Simple as that, you know, and it wasn't going to be a quick one because I knew I I couldn't kill myself. I tried it. Mm. Right. So it was going to be a slow, painful, lonely, bitter, angry 
death. Mm. I, and I knew I was better than that. Mm. I knew I was better than what I was showing the world. Mm. And so I had to get honest, right? Mm. This is what happened. This is what I did. And this is where I ended up, mm. right? Mm. And until we can get people to that point, they're going to struggle, you know, just like your friends, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, instead of, instead of pointing the finger and judging them, why don't you just ask them, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. What happened to you? Mm-hmm. Right? And then say, I don't care what you tell me. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to judge you. I just want to help. But I can't help unless you tell me what happened. Mm. Right? Very powerful. Honestly, that's exactly what I should be saying, 100%. I think, yeah. I think this, this is great information. I think a lot of people are going to benefit from this, honestly. Yeah, because, because if you don't know what the problem is, right? Everybody thinks that the problem is alcohol. If you remove the alcohol, everything's going to be fine. No, you still have the ism, mm. alcoholism. You still have the ism, you know, and the ism is the trauma, is the mental health issues. And so you need to, you know, get rid of that stigma, mm. get to the core of what, what the issue really is. And it's usually trauma, right? Mm. What I find in my experience is usually trauma right Hmm. i don't know if you've ever watched that show intervention yeah 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 well when you're watching it next time look for the trauma piece because it's always there Hmm. you know Hmm. and once that person opens up to what their trauma is then everything else is explained that's why we gravitate towards those kind of behaviors because it helps suppress that emotional pain and suffering that we're feeling, mm-hmm. right? Definitely. And so, and so, you know, what happened is better than, you know, why don't you just stop drinking? Well, it's not, it's, you know, that's not what it is. Mm. That's not the problem. Mm. The problem is what is at the core of the reason why you need to use alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, food, to suppress how you're feeling, mm, mm. right? Definitely. Because it's, you know, it's sadness, it's anger, it's shame, it's guilt, you know. And guilt and shame are what kill people. Mm. That's what kills people is the guilt and the shame. Mm. And you need somebody to come in and put the mind, put your mind in their mind. Mm. That's compassion. That's empathy. That's love. That's attachment. That's caring, right? That's what they need. That's what they need. They don't need judgment. They don't need pointing fingers. They don't need frustration. They need somebody who is compassionate and understands exactly what they're going through. Listen, Theo, thank you so much for coming on Perform, man. You are an amazing guest added a tremendous amount of value. Honestly, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure.